Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 30. Jimmy the Fearless. The very next morning, I sat in a rehearsal room at the Fun Factory, my good knee bouncing up and down with nervous energy. Charlie sat opposite me with Tilly. He was perplexed to see me there, you could tell that, and his toe was tapping out an agitated rhythm on his chair leg. Tilly, meanwhile, squinted at me, puzzled. I looked levelly at Chaplin, enjoying his discomfiture. He'd reminded me that it was war. How could I have forgotten? Also present, and on tenterhooks, were Stan, Mike Asher and Ernie Stone, Albert Austin, the taciturn fellow I knew from Jailbirds, Bert Williams and his wife, and Emily Seaman, who was already fluttering her pretty eyelashes at Mike across the room. Her husband George was touring in Scotland, I think, at the time. And a couple more I didn't know yet, Harry Daniels and Willie Parsons. We were waiting for the governor. Right at the end of the previous afternoon, a large part of the wedding party had been breaking up. The omnibuses were there, loading up with passengers to spread laughter out all over the capital once or twice again. Some were staying on, the lucky few who were important enough to be able to take a night off. Suddenly, a bunch of well-wishers had dispersed, and the bridegroom was by himself for a moment. At last, I darted in to take advantage. "'Congratulations, Alf,' I'd said, pumping his hand heartily. "'Thank you, Arthur,' he'd replied. He'd seemed distracted.' It was his wedding day, after all, and rice had begun to rain down on both of us from the top deck of the nearest bus. I decided to get straight to the point. "'Thank you for inviting me,' I said. "'I feel privileged.' "'The least I could do,' he'd said, keeping hold of my hand. "'And if there's ever anything else I can do for you, you only have to ask.' "'There is one thing, as it happens. "'Name it,' Alfred said earnestly. "'I want to come back.' As we waited, I thought about the gossip I'd picked up about Charlie. The thing about him, you see, one of the things anyway, was that he was a truly masterful mimic and mime. Ask him to express an emotion, or a fleeting thought even, using just the body God gave him, and he was something of a marvel. If you asked him to speak, however, he was simply not impressive at all. It was his misfortune, then, to discover that many of the number one roles he was now expected to shine in required him to master dialogue, and it was eating away at his confidence. It was getting to a point where there were serious mumblings about his position, and his bumptious and annoying confidence of the day before had been masking his very real concern. Then the door banged open, and in came the governor, as if propelled by a hurricano. When he saw me there, he half stumbled on the threshold, but then pressed on regardless. "'All right, you lot, listen to this,' he said, gathering us to him. "'It is to be an entirely new show, and you are to be the first to play it.' He clutched a script in his hand. I say a script, it was barely more than a few jottings on the back of a receipt for something or other, but that's all his scripts ever amounted to. And he'd clearly been in the grip of his legendary creative power. Stan grinned at me. This was exciting. Charlie looked as though he'd been given a week to live. The name of the piece is... He scrabbled for his notes. It was so freshly baked that he could hardly hold on to the thing without oven gloves. There, that's it. Jimmy the Fearless. We raised our eyebrows at each other as though those three words conveyed the whole scenario, which, of course, they didn't. Charlie looked pale. 
"'Chaplin, you'll be Jimmy,' the governor went on, hauling Charlie to his feet and putting his arm round his shoulders as if to walk him through it. "'Now Jimmy here is a dreamer. He likes nothing more than to lose himself in a penny dreadful, a penny blood, you know the sort of thing, drives his folks up the wall. His father, that's you, Dando,' he said, pointing at me but not looking at me, "'wants him to settle down, take things a bit more seriously, but no, it's all stories for Jimmy. With me?' We all nodded vigorously. I closed my eyes and gave silent thanks to God and to Alf Reeves. "'Right, here's the nub of the whole thing,' Carno said, and we inched closer in anticipation. Jimmy falls asleep, and he begins to dream of things he's been reading about. Pirates, red engines, bandits, gunfights, sword fights, and so forth. Suddenly, the dreams come to life. We all looked around to see who had dared to interrupt the governor in full flow. It was Stan, the light of enthusiasm shining in his eyes. "'Yes, exactly!' Carno cried, pointing at Stan, not at all put out. In fact, he seemed galvanised by Stan's excitement, and began to pace around, waving his arms in the air. "'We shall need backdrops painting so we can switch locations in a flash, and it will be a tremendous adventure, at breakneck speed, blah, blah, blah. "'You,' here he indicated Bert Williams, "'are Alkali Ike, the leader of the bandits.' And he went on round the room, allocating roles hither and thither. Albert Austin was the engine chief, Washtini Wampum, or Wampum Narwashti, it varied from night to night. Stan and Mike were in the cowboy gang and also pirates. Ernie would play the bartender in the bar where the big showdown was to take place. And Tilly, the beautiful maiden, who was held to ransom and rescued by the boy hero himself. The company broke into delighted applause, eager to get started, to flesh out the scheme the governor proposed. All but Chaplin. He shrugged, sniffed air out from his nose dismissively. He and Carno looked daggers at one another for a moment. Then the governor turned to the rest of us. All right, there it is. Get on with it. He turned on his shiny shod heel and stalked out. We threw ourselves into the rehearsals with a will. I had never played in a sketch with Stan before and was amazed by the way ideas just streamed out of him. Gags here, bits of business there, and we were all carried along by the flow. The piece seemed somehow to be assembling around Charlie, who, in contrast, was a great leaden lump of disinterest bringing the whole thing down. I don't know what was the matter with him, but he seemed to have convinced himself that the whole idea was a bust and just couldn't get himself up to the starter's mark. Well, the governor could hardly fail to notice this when he stopped by to see how things were shaping up, and there was a bit of a scene between the two of them that was more diverting to watch than anything Charlie was contributing to the sketch itself. Injuns, Carno said after watching us run through what we had so far. Very good. More of that dancing. That's funny. Alkali Ike, that's all funny too, you and your cowboys. We'll get some more shooting in there. We'll work on that scene when we get the firing caps. He turned to Chaplin. Jimmy, we need more from you. The whole thing comes from you. We need more energy, more fizz, and we need to find a bit of the old wistful from somewhere too. At the moment, you just look like you want to be somewhere else. Perhaps I do, Charlie said. The whole room froze and held its breath. What? Carno said icily. Perhaps I think the whole thing is just a bit silly. "'Silly?' the governor said, sticking his chest out. Chaplin looked at his fingernails languidly. "'Yes, silly. Cowboys and Injuns. Like something you'd put on for children. I don't know why you reckon so much to it, frankly.' "'Well, perhaps, then, you'd rather not take part in this silly children's show at all.' Chaplin shrugged, as if it was a matter of supreme indifference to him. "'In that case,' Carno said, cold steel in his voice, it is fortunate indeed that there is someone already in company, right now, who is ideally suited to take your place. My heart stopped. Here it comes, I thought, all of a sudden, unbelievably, out of absolutely nowhere. Vindication. Victory. 
All around the room, eyes were darting at me in anticipation. Everyone there remembered the showdown at the Oxford, so if Charlie was being shoved aside, who was the next cab off the rank? Why, yours truly. Stan Jefferson, Carno said. You're Jimmy, Chaplin, take a fortnight off, unpaid. And he strode out of the place. A beat and a half later, Charlie picked up his hat and followed, his footsteps echoing in the shocked silence. No one was more surprised than Stan at his sudden elevation. Having said that, though, we were all pretty surprised. Staggered, actually. "'I want you all to know,' he said, breaking the stunned silence. "'It isn't going to make a blind bit of difference.' He turned to me. "'You fellow, bring me tea, just a splash of milk, and be quick about it.' This was followed by a huge Stan grin and a great roar of laughter from everyone, which Charlie must have heard as he exited the building in his huff. Stan was a crackerjack, coming up with gags for everyone, business loaded upon business, and without the dead weight of Charlie's disdain for the whole idea pulling us down, the thing began to fly. To give you just one idea as an example, Carner's brief notes call for Jimmy, the boy hero, to demonstrate his prowess with a six-shooter. "'Tis not for naught I have been called the dead shot of the plains,' he would cry. "'I have never been known to miss.' And then the idea was he would shoot the topmost feather from the headdress of Washti na Wampum, or possibly Wampum na Washti, depending on which version Albert Austin had used when first introducing himself. The feather, of course, was tricked to vanish when the smoke cap in the gun was fired off. Stan liked this effect well enough, but then he started to think, that feather is really small. What about the fellows up in the gods? What if the whole feathered headdress were shot off? In fact, what if the whole feathered headdress and the engine chief's hair beneath were shot off, leaving him suddenly bald as a coot? So Albert was tricked out in a bald wig to cover his own hair, then the engine chief's hair with two large plaits hanging down, and then the big multicoloured feathered headdress, and the whole lot was attached to an invisible line. The first time Stan tried it in a rehearsal, he fired off the gun with a tremendous bang and a puff of smoke, and in an instant Albert was standing there, his head as bald as a baby's behind, a look of pop-eyed astonishment on his face. Everyone was caught up in the excitement. I stayed behind after everyone else had gone and painted the backdrops. It was a labour of love, actually. I was able to bring to life the America I'd read about in my penny blood since I was a boy. Mighty snow-capped rocky mountains, great sweeping bear-laden forests, dusty sun-baked main streets just ripe for a gunfight. Tilly, too, was full of enthusiasm, partly because the fact that Charlie had opted out meant that she was there on her own merits and not just by his patronage. And although we didn't get round to discussing it, she must have noticed that having once chosen Carno over her, and once dropped her because of Carno, now I was braving Carno for her. Come the first night, Stan was on pins with nerves, as he'd every right to be, of course. We were playing the show twice in a night, once in Ealing, and then again up in Wilsdon, huge hippodromes both. We assembled, along with the other Carno companies that were playing the capital that week at the Fun Factory, to be ferried off in the Carno omnibuses. It was cold, especially for April, and Stan and I had bought ourselves hot potatoes from a street brazier, which we shoved in our pockets to keep our hands warm, an old Fun Factory trick. I still can't believe it, Stan grinned. Me, a star comedian with a Carno show. I grinned back. I was happy for him. Really, I was. The buses arrived and Stan and I made to go inside on the lower level, which was a prized perk of the lead performers, but Frank O'Neill barred our way. "'What's up, Frank?' I said. "'He's a principal, isn't he?' "'Not yet he's not,' O'Neill growled. "'Up top, you two. Nothing could take the wind out of Stan's sails, however, and we rode to West London, he and my teeth both chattering away in the late winter chill. Stan still seemed to be shivering when the curtain went up at the Ealing Hippodrome and I was a trifle alarmed as I watched him begin, waiting in the wings ready to join him on stage. 
He was reading his penny blood at the kitchen table and slicing a crusty loaf of bread at the same time without taking his eyes from the page. In his nervousness, he cut the loaf into a sort of spiral so that when he came to pick up a slice to eat, the whole thing was still all in one piece. I saw him realise what he'd done and smile at himself. Then he grabbed the ends of the loaf and pulled it in and out, playing it like a concertina, doing a little jig around the table all the while. The audience hooted with glee. I didn't worry about him any more after that, because I knew full well what I'd just seen. I'd seen the power. The crowd at the Ealing Hippodrome quite simply loved little fearless Jimmy and his adventures. I had time to take a peek out at the audience, and what do you know? I caught sight of a familiar face, slap bang in the middle of the front row. It was Charlie, of course, dressed to the nines like a dude, and with a face of stone. I guess he still didn't think much of the idea. He was in a minority of one, though, that night. The climax of the whole thing was a bit of business Stan and I devised between the two of us. Jimmy's dad, yours truly, would find Jimmy, Stan, asleep on the kitchen table, still clutching the forbidden volume, and would administer a fearsome thrashing with his belt. Stan would begin to cry, a particular effect all of his own, and it brought the place down. The audience were on their feet, cheering and stamping, all except Charlie, who sat there in his seat in the middle of the front row, stock still, his arms folded, his face grim as a rock, his purple eyes locked on Stan. I watched him as the curtain came down for the last time, watched as it wiped him from sight. Then I turned to join in the celebrations. It was so thrilling suddenly, the feeling that we had created the thing from scratch and made such a hit of it. I forgot myself entirely and threw my arms around Tilly. After a moment I realised what I was doing, but she didn't seem to object and was hugging me back. We broke apart a little awkwardly then and smiled at one another shyly, and then we turned and each hugged someone else. It was that sort of night. If possible, the second show at Willesden went even better. Three thousand people were packed in there. It was a real monster of a hall, the sort of a place where you were sometimes caught out by a big laugh, taking its own sweet time to roll in from the back. But they loved Jimmy too. And there, in the middle of the front row once again, arms folded, impassive, unmoved, was Charlie Chaplin. The next night he was there again, at Ealing and Willesden both, sitting smack in the middle of the front row, not laughing. And the night after... Same thing. Some comedians, you know, find it impossible to laugh at other people working. There's just too much going on in the old brain box, thinking how they would do such and such a thing differently, how they'd have left more of a pause there, or less of one. All sorts of things rattling about between your thinking equipment and your laughter machinery, getting in the way, fouling up the works. I asked one comedian, who shall remain nameless on account of the fact that I've forgotten which one it was, but believe me, there are several it could have been, why he wasn't laughing at an act that had the rest of us in tux. It's too good, was his reply. Anyway, after a few days of this, and having ample reason besides to want to put Charlie's nose out of joint, I decided to do something about it. Knowing that he and Tilly were still seeing one another, I contrived to sit next to her on the Carno omnibus one evening as it trundled to the theatre. Stan is doing well, don't you think? I began brightly. Tilly smiled at me, a smile which warmed my cockles more than any hot potato ever could. "'Isn't he?' she agreed. "'He's a little marvel, that boy.' "'I think this could be the making of him, you know,' I said, laying it on with a trowel. "'I've heard lots of people say it. He could be the next big thing.' "'Do you think so?' Tilly said. "'Oh, yes. Charlie made a terrible mistake getting out of this sketch, you know.' "'Well, good for Stan, I say. He deserves it. He's made it what it is.' "'That's right,' I said. "'loving her, then, for not suggesting Charlie would have been better than our friend. "'However, I wanted her to be sure to pass on the meat of this conversation to him, "'so ended with a topper. "'Actually, you know, I've heard people say that now he's got Stan, "'the governor won't be needing Charlie any more.' 
Her eyes widened. You don't say. Cool. I wished I could have seen Chaplin's face when that one landed. There was something else on my mind, of course, and she seemed relatively kindly disposed to me just at that moment, so I found myself blurting out, "'You remember when we were pretending to be married, don't you?' "'Of course I remember,' she said, pursing her lips and looking at the floor, "'but that was a long time ago, wasn't it?' She gave every impression of wanting to quit this conversation, but we were on the omnibus, so there was nowhere else for her to go just then. "'Do you never wonder why it came to such a sudden end, that time in Warrington?' She frowned, puzzled. "'Well, Sid Chaplin found out about us, didn't he, and put a stop to it?' Yes, but we never knew, did we, how Sid got to find out about us? Well, he must have... I suppose I thought... She tailed off. Like me, she'd been so dumbstruck by the speed of events back then that she'd never tried to work it out. It seemed an insignificant point compared to the collapse of our happy idyll. Charlie, I said. What about him? Charlie knew about us, and he told Sid. Tilly looked at me baffled. But why would he? He's your friend. "'That's not all,' I said. "'Charlie knew about us in Hartlepool. "'He got wind of it off Stan. "'Stan assumed he knew about it already, you see, "'but Charlie, right, didn't spill the beans "'until just before the Governor was coming to sneak a look "'at both of us, remember? "'Him and me, in Warrington. "'He waited, waited, waited until he could use it to put me off. "'What do you think of that?' "'Yes, yes,' Tilly said, "'wafting her hand distractedly and turning away from me. "'I'm sure it's all about you, Arthur, dear.' <laughs> By the end of that week, Jimmy the Fearless was running on rails. Two a nights will do that for you. We'd all settled into our roles, all the effects were coming off, and Stan was in blistering form. The response in Ealing was rapturous, with the exception always of one member of the front row, and we moved on to Wilsdon in high spirits. There, however, things took a bit of a funny turn. We all knew that Fred Carner would make the pilgrimage up from the fun factory at some point to check on the progress of his newest creation and asset, and as he hadn't been seen thus far, we all assumed it would be this, the last show of the week, that he would grace with his presence. It started well enough. Stan sat at the table sawing away at the loaf of bread and reading his penny story. Some of the audience were already giggling when suddenly a voice cut through. "'Hey, Jimmy, that's not how you cut bread!' It threw Stan, you could see it. He peered out over the footlights, a puzzled expression on his guileless face, and then he tried to carry on. The bread concertina gag went for nothing, but Stan just shook his head and got on to the next bit. A minute or two later I heard the voice again. This time it was loud enough to be heard on stage, but not so loud that the rest of the huge theatre knew what was happening. Jimmy! 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 It was a relentless, insistent, brain-emptying chant and Stan could hardly not look out into the stalls again to see what the fellow wanted. When he did, the voice stopped, but something else happened which I couldn't see, because Stan took half a step back in astonishment. I was waiting in the wings to enter as Jimmy's dad. It was not yet my cue, but I thought, to hell with it, I'm going out there. Let the bastard take on both of us if he dares. So I stormed out onto the apron. My part required me to be loud and forceful, and I was double that. The voice could have continued niggling away for all I knew or cared. No one could have heard it. Stan saw what I was doing and skipped into step with me. We built up a head of steam together and got the sketch back on its feet. I caught Stan's eye and he gave me a merry wink, so I knew he was back. Inevitably, in a sketch as long as Jimmy the Fearless was, there were changes of pace, lulls and lacunae, quieter passages between the louder and more frantic parts, and after a little while the voice returned to its insidious malicious work. Jimmy, 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 Jimmy... Jimmy! 
Stan and I spotted him at the same moment, a dozen rows back, bang in the middle. He saw Stan spot him, which was, of course, the whole point of the imbecilic little chant he'd set up, and when he knew he had his full attention, he pointed straight at my friend, and then pinched his own nose in the international language of mime gesture for indicating a bad smell. Stan blinked at the man. I didn't, though. I had recognised him. For the nose that he was pinching was a distinctive one. It comprised two uneven swollen globes with a cleft in the middle, so that it looked like nothing so much as a pair of testicles. I heard muted gasps from my comrades behind me as I strode down to the front of the stage and glared out at the fellow, his bald head surrounded by a ginger halo. He saw me, of course, and his smug expression changed to one of some apprehension. I raised my arm slowly and pointed straight at him. "'You!' I roared. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Chapter 31. I'll get my own back. The fellow blanched and would, I think, have fled that very instant if he hadn't been hemmed in on all sides. Everyone else was wondering whether this was part of the show, of course, because if it was, it was quite interesting to watch, and if it wasn't, well, then it was even more interesting, wasn't it? Who knows what might have happened next if Stan hadn't taken my arm and pulled me gently back into the fictional world of Jimmy the Fearless. Come on, Dad, he said softly. As I thrashed away at poor Jimmy with my belt at the end of the sketch, I was looking straight at the miserable ginger bastard. He was pinned there by my gaze, and I was thinking, just stay there, chum, just stay right there. Down came the curtain. Ouch, Stan said to me, rubbing his stinging backside. Hold something back, can't you? I wasn't listening, though. I was reaching for my walking cane, which was leaning by the prompt desk. All thoughts that the governor was probably out there in the auditorium had been driven from my mind. Up went the curtain. Warm applause broke out. Perhaps not quite what we'd become accustomed to that week, but still not bad. Stan walked out to take his bow. I followed him, then stepped over the footlights and leapt down into the audience. I took the brunt of the landing on my good pin, but my right knee still sent a blade of fire right up my other leg. I roared a wild animal noise. Some in the audience screamed at this. It must have been like that time when the bioscope showed a train heading straight for the front row and people believed it was about to burst through the screen. I landed close to Charlie, who pulled his feet up in alarm like a child has been told there's a crocodile under his bed. I saw clearly in his face that he feared I might be coming for him. I wasn't, though. I was after testicle nose, and old testicle nose knew it. <laughs> <laughs> 
I raced as best as I could around to the end of his row, ignoring the various whoops and shouts coming from all around, and began clambering towards him over knees and legs and coats, while he began to barge along the row away from me. The audience were cheering now, cheering me on. It might have been an act, or it might have been real. Either way, it was certainly added value for their one and sixpenny. His arms were flailing. He looked like he was swimming desperately through a sea of people, but even so, he still made it out into the aisle before I was near enough to snag him. He ran pell-mell up the side of the auditorium and out through the exit. I was not far behind, and as I reached the foyer, I saw him bursting out into the street. I gave chase, myself pursued by several dozen excited audience members. I half ran, half limped with my cane out into the night, and for a moment I couldn't see my quarry. Then my little posse gave a disappointed groan, and a couple of them pointed at a shadowy figure, already quite a way off, heading for the railway bridge. I was not done yet. I set off in pursuit, pushing myself along with my cane. It hurt like hell, but my blood was up. Testicle nose galloped over the railway bridge. A train passed below as he went over, and he was clearly silhouetted for an instant, and then entirely enveloped in steam. Over the railway the road swung round and down to the left. There were shop fronts and any number of alleyways left and right that Testicle Nose could have darted into, but he was busily charging along in full view, a little way off, and so I still had hopes of catching him. Testicle Nose let me get closer as he recovered his wind, and then suddenly jogged off again. He wasn't at full tilt now, he didn't feel like he needed to be. He just bounced along, constantly looking back, keeping the distance between us. I drove my complaining leg on and on. I was going to pay for this in the morning. My prey looked around for traffic. There was none, and he darted across the road to a brick wall about six feet high, with a wrought-iron gate set into it. Testicle Nose looked back at me and grinned. Then he reached up, hauled himself onto the top of the wall, and then sprang down to land on the other side. He looked back at me through the iron gate, smirking, confident that my leg would not allow me to follow. He'd seen what happened to it, of course, at close quarters. I was made of sterner stuff, however, and fuelled by fury. I slapped my cane onto the top of the wall and heaved myself up. I looked down at that hated face, a twinkling drop of some sort of indeterminate liquid hanging at the end of his absurd hooter, and saw doubt creep across it. He turned and bolted as I slithered painfully down to ground level. I needed a moment to recover after that, and looked around as I sucked air in between gritted teeth. I found myself now inside Kensal Green Cemetery, no light save that provided by Mother Nature. Gravestones loomed up in the dark on the left and right. Family mausoleums, some the size of a small house, lurked blackly in the middle of the lawns. Stone angels the size of a man stood guard over the departed, casting huge black shadows everywhere. You'd have to be an idiot not to be able to find a hiding place in here, I thought to myself in despair, as I crunched slowly down the path, as inconspicuously as I could, looking for signs of life. Fortunately, Testicle Nose was just such an idiot, and having lured me into the cemetery to spook me, had spooked himself. He was desperate to get out of there, and I heard his panicking feet on the gravel ahead, just before I saw his silhouette making for the outer wall on the far side of the graveyard, then leaping up and over it. I made a dash across the grass to grab him, and almost had his trouser leg, but was just too slow off the mark. No time to lose. Painfully, I hauled myself up after him, and half dropped, half fell on the other side, clutching my knee to protect it from the landing. I was on a towpath alongside a canal. The canal gleamed in the moonlight, and stretched out straight as an arrow in both directions. The canal disappeared into a dark tunnel under Ladbroke Grove one way, and round a bend in the other direction, but he couldn't have made either, not without me seeing him. So he was near. Right in front of me, two longboats were lashed to the bank. 
Neither had lights on or seemed to be occupied at all. One of them sat perfectly still on the water. One of them bobbed gently up and down. Got you, I thought. Damn it, I shouted aloud then, looking desperately left and right. I started off towards the tunnel, but then changed my mind and made for the bend in the other direction. Damn it all, I shouted again, putting on a show, you see, because I knew where Testicle Nose was hiding. The only place he could be was in the little stairwell at the back end of the boat that led down into the long cabin. Softly, softly, with a view to catching Monkey, I slipped up onto the roof. After a minute or two he felt safe enough to emerge, inching carefully up the steps, peering round the edge of the barge, left and right along the towpath, everywhere but right above, which is where I was. I whistled softly. He looked up, startled, and I kicked the sliding hatch which covered the stairwell. I kicked it hard. The front edge caught him squarely on his ridiculous conk. He fell back in a heap, stunned, and blood began to gush freely from both globes. I looked down triumphantly, but he wasn't out cold as I'd expected, and he scrambled to his feet. I picked up the nearest item to hand, which was a hand-painted green metal jug, design floral. I laid it alongside the fellow's head with a satisfying clang, which I should say reduced the capacity of the utensil by about half. Still he didn't go down, though, and he made a dazed spring for the bank, sprawling on his face on the towpath. I jumped after him, and immediately wished I hadn't. My knee gave beneath me, and I measured my length on the ground, screaming like a girl. By the time I'd pushed myself up to my feet with my cane, Testicle Nose was standing before me. The bottom half of his face was bloody, his nose was even larger than before, and seemed to be throbbing. He didn't want to discuss the matter. His hand jabbed forward threateningly, and I caught the glint of a short, broad, nasty-looking knife. A fighter's knife. He smirked, as he had smirked in the theatre, only with even more malicious intent behind it now. At that moment I suddenly remembered a lesson Ernie Stone taught me one idle evening. We were talking about fighting. He was once a boxer, you'll recall, and he said this. If a man pulls a knife on you, it's because he don't know how to use his fists. Which was encouraging. He expects you to be scared, see, to freeze, to let him stand there deciding how to stick you. It's natural. It's going to be your first thought. So what you must do is punch him right away. Punch him hard. Knock him down. Don't even think. Just punch. Good old Ernie. As it happens, I didn't punch testicle nose. I whipped up my cane and potted his nose with it, as if I was playing a cannon in billiards. Then I punched him. Hard. Really hard. When he awoke, some little time later, I was sitting on his legs. He was face down, with the top half of his body hanging over the edge of the canal. I had his knife, and I'd tied his hands behind his back with some rope I'd appropriated from the longboat. If I stood up, he'd go into the water, and that would be the end of him. It didn't take him more than an instant to work this out, and he started wailing and wriggling. "'Hey!' I said. "'Keep still, will you? You don't want to throw me off!' He saw the wisdom of this and desisted. A great snort came from him as he tried to breathe through a snootful of blood. "'Now then,' I said casually, "'you and I are going to have a little chat, all right?' I'd had a minute or two to think while he'd been out for the count, and I'd decided that it was quite a prize coincidence that this same fellow would barrack two separate shows that I was involved with in two separate venues in two separate parts of town. I mean, if he disliked our comedy so much, why would he even bother to keep turning up for more disappointment? "'Pull! Pull me up! Pull me up!' he cried. I hooked my cane in the collar of his jacket and then rolled off his legs. He squealed in terror as he felt himself sliding towards the murky water, but I held him and then yanked him up onto his back on dry land. I crouched by his head and shoved his own nasty little knife up one of his misshapen nostrils. That got his attention. All right, 
No more messing about, you got me? He nodded very carefully indeed. So what do you think you were doing, eh? How would you like it if I came down to where you work and start having a go at you, come down to where you're shoveling shit or whatever the hell it is you do, and shout that you're not doing it properly, eh? I jabbed his knife further up his nose and his eyes widened. Fuck off! He hissed. Charmer, I said. So did someone put you up to it? Is that what's going on? Someone doesn't like Fred Carno? Is that it? Is it? Fuck off! He hissed again. You getting paid, are you, for heckling us? Oh ho! I had reached into his jacket pocket and come out with a little clutch of fivers. His eyes narrowed. I don't really think you've earned these, have you? Letting me catch up to you and me with a busted knee and all. Testicle Nose made a great effort to speak clearly and as menacingly as he could manage. You let me up right now, or it'll be the worse for you. This little sideline of yours is over and done with. You got me, I said, still skewering his grotesque proboscis. You tell whoever it is that's paying you that every Carno comic will know to look out for you, and if we ever see you again, it will be the worse for you. Got it? I withdrew the knife from his nose, at which he sniffed and snorted with relief. I grabbed his shirt front and pulled him to his feet, then spun him round and sawed away at the rope round his wrists. I felt him tense just before he was freed, and he might as well have sent me advance warning by telegraph. Sure enough, he took half a pace forward and swung a huge haymaker at my head. I swayed back out of the way of it and then shoved him into the canal. Let me say, as a postscriptum to this episode on behalf of the Brotherhood, Think twice before you heckle a comedian, because that rage is bottled up inside all of us, that desire to jump down and sort you out, and if you pick the wrong target, you might just find yourself in a canal, if you're lucky. By the time I'd retraced my steps to the Hippodrome, the Jimmy Company and the Carno Omnibus had all left without me, heading down to the Enterprise to collect their week's pay. I made the best speed I could to follow by tram and cab, I'd done more than enough walking to last me a week, and my knee was on fire. When I got there and pushed my way into the pub, the place fell silent. Mike, Ernie and Stan were over by the bar nursing beers and smoking, so I joined them. Slowly a hubbub of conversation started up again, but it wasn't the usual lively atmosphere by any means. "'What ho, boys?' I said. "'Who's for another?' They shook their heads mournfully, all three of them. That's when I knew something was up, those boys knocking back the offer of a beer. "'What's happened?' I said. "'Somebody died?' The other two looked to Stan, who was uncharacteristically downcast. He gave me a wan smile and said, "'Charlie has been to Carno and told him he'll play Jimmy after all, "'and so that's how it's going to be.' My blood was still running hot. "'Oh, ho! Is that so? Where's the governor? I want to talk to him.' "'He wants to talk to you,' said Alf Reeves from behind me. "'He's in his office. I'm to bring you over as soon as you show.' "'Lead on,' I said.' Alf and Frank O'Neill walked me across the street to the fun factory. We all fell into step, and it struck me suddenly that they were like prison guards leading me to the hangman. Carno was waiting, almost in the dark, just one lamp burning low. His fingers drummed on the desk. What was all this? Well, said the governor, what have you to say for yourself? I hear you've put Charlie in instead of Stan, I said. That's an utter disgrace. What have you to say for yourself? We're not discussing that, he snapped. Behind him, Alf closed his eyes and shook his head slowly. Well, what are we talking about, then? Jacket, the manager of the Wilsden Hippodrome, you know him? I nodded, recalling a stuck-up little martinet with oiled hair who'd been strutting about the place like it was his personal fiefdom all week. He's demanding your head on a platter, or else he'll book no more Carno shows into his theatre for fear of a repeat of this atrocity. Atrocity? I laughed. 
I still saw myself as the righteous victim, you see. Well, what would you call it? Carno exploded, leaping from stage and assaulting a member of the paying public. But, I spluttered, for crying out loud, what were you thinking? Carno shouted. What possible justification could there be for such madness? Well, I said, the thing is... I caught Alf's eye just at that moment, and he was staring at me hard, almost willing me to say nothing. It dawned on me that I was in real trouble. The only reason, the only reason I'm not going to give him what he wants is this. No jumped-up little prig is going to tell me how to run my company. I could buy and sell him in his theatre a hundred times over, the pompous little arse. Never been on stage in his life. Doesn't know what we have to put up with, and that's a fact. I glanced at Alf, who was exhaling slowly, willing me to keep my mouth shut. That said, Carno growled, this must never, never happen again. I make myself clear. Yes, Governor, I said, casting my eyes to the floor penitently. Carno sat behind his desk and wafted me from his presence with one exhausted hand. As I made my way back over the road to the Enterprise, I realised that that was the first time the Governor had ever spoken to me since the Oxford. Well, Stan said anxiously as I walked in, are you out? No, I said, you're still stuck with me. The boys grinned. Mike handed me a pint, and I held it up to toast the assembled company. Later, I sat quietly to one side, looking out of the window at the fun factory, pondering the question of my ginger adversary. Someone had paid that rotten bugger to heckle Carno shows. But who? And why? He wasn't going to tell me, even when I stuck a knife up his nose. I decided that, come what may, I would get to the bottom of it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.